The Sunday after Christmas is um, it's kind of a dark day. In fact, I know some other pastors and I have called it Black Sunday in jest to each other. It's probably not the least cynical humor we could have. Um, it has to do with, it's the same after Easter. Everybody comes, or a lot of people come. Big service, big up. And then, well, I went to church twice this week. What do I need Sunday for? And, and that's maybe not how you think it through, but it's what happens. And so less people come. Uh, as a result, a lot of pastors, myself included, will normally take this Sunday as one of our vacation Sundays. We usually get a couple of those. And it's tough to get away. You don't want to miss a chance to teach. But you kind of need to take it time off sometimes. And so this tends to be the one that's taken. And in theory, I'm actually on vacation today. Uh, but I, I was going to stay in town, and I'd, I'd just as soon teach if it's all the same. But it doesn't stop it from being, again, like a, it's a downer Sunday. And, and you have this in your house. I mean, the, 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 the presents are there. It's so beautiful. You're so excited. The kids are going to open it. It's fun. We all love it. And then it's over. And the tree's still there. And it just doesn't look the same. Yeah? And it's not like it's bad. There's all the stuff you can kind of use, but you walk around, there's a box here, and there's some stuff over there. It's just, it just is down, right? And this is just human nature. If you're going to have an up, you're going to have a down. But then, as if that weren't enough, the, uh, the ancient church, when they put together the lectionary that still forms the basis for, for all of our church calendar, and as a result is influencing the way that the Old Testament lectionary is being built by me, uh, they chose this Sunday to not let us forget that along with shepherds and angels and wise men, you also have murdered babies for Christmas. I mean, we, we have a new banner in the back here for, for Christmas though, to go with the white. It's beautiful. You got the star, you got the crash scene, Joseph married the baby. I mean, that's the way we like to picture the whole story, right? And maybe you throw the wise men in there, although we have another one with wise men on it that'll be here next week. Um, isn't it interesting that I've never seen a crash with, with Roman soldiers or Hebrew soldiers taking two-year-old boys out of their mother's arms to kill them. Like We don't put that in the picture. It's kind of like the Noah's Ark thing we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? We don't put the dead bodies in the water. We just put the floating menagerie on the sea. And that's our tendency as, as humans to, to want to enjoy what is good that God gives while ignoring the evil we have brought alongside of it and all that it means. I'm not saying you, you're wrong to not have dead babies on, you know, in, in your pictures at home. But again, the ancient church has left us unable to tear that part of the story away. And to see that from the very beginning, Jesus coming among us, well, it meant death. It was to deal with death, to handle death, but it meant more death. His own, first and foremost, but then also all those who will be tied to his name. And so again, in, in their wisdom, the early church, whether you like them or not, they at least, 
they understood, and I think they, they teach us to not forget that these babies that died were Christians. Now, granted, they had not grown up and been confirmed or given their lives to Jesus or any such thing. They were merely people who had received the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's all they were, or people who had the promises given to them. And in their life, what that meant, both for those in Moses' day and for those in Jesus' day, what that meant was they were circumcised on the eighth day. They were, they were marked physically by a sign that God created to mark them as the people whom he was saying, I'm saving the world and you're included. So they had that. And as a total beside tangent sucker punch, so did the thief on the cross. When people say, you know, he wasn't baptized, so how could baptism say? Well, he was circumcised, and baptism had not been given to the nations yet. That's how. Anyhow. These, the early church saw these, these babies were Christians. And whether or not every single individual of them indeed had faith, it doesn't matter. I don't know. But they were in the people who had faith. They were with the people who had faith. And in this, when they die, they die for the faith. They die because they are Hebrew people who are under the belief that their king will be born to save them from sin, death, and the power of the devil. And a man who does not want that to happen, because it will mean the end of his power, kills them for it. So these are the first martyrs of the church. The first people who die because they have the blood of Jesus close to them. On them, even. Now again, it's not the most Merry Christmassy thing ever, and yet, when the early church remembered this and put this here in this festival season of Christmas, 12 days of Christmas. It's all festival. It wasn't like it was like, oh, sad. It was more like blessed people elected to die in the faith of Jesus. And you see this in the book of Acts, especially with, with all the early Christians as they're coming to faith. Like Peter and, and James and John, they get arrested and beaten. And then they come from that situation thanking God that they were allowed to speak his word to people who didn't have it and that he counted them worthy to suffer in the process. I mean, how inverted is that, right, from human nature? We don't think that. It's not just we Americans. We humans don't think that. Oh, thank goodness I got to not only talk about Jesus today, but he punched me afterwards. That was great. Like, we don't do that. And yet they did do that. And I'm not asking you to try to have that desire. But I am asking you to, well, I guess be a little bit humiliated that we don't have any, any August comfort in the concept of martyrdom. It's like to be martyred would be to lose out when it's the other way around. And these babies, again, they teach us that. Now, I can't go past this also, and, and this is another sort of sucker punch, but it, it really, I don't even know how we deal with this as Christians, honestly. And we, we, there's no place for us to do it enough. Uh, and if not now, then never. Because I think that we sit here from 2,000 years later, and we look back, and we think, man, that was that awful Herod. What a, what a bad man. Look at what he did. He killed ah, 40 kids, maybe 40. 
And, you know, Pharaoh, uh, no doubt he killed more than 40. I, uh, I don't know what it would be, a couple thousand probably. A couple thousand babies thrown into the river. It's terrible. It's awful. And it is. But we sit here and we look down our noses and, and kind of spit on it as if we're in some more righteous position. And it really is no different from the way we look back on 1930s Germany. How awful those Nazis were for all the Jews that they murdered. And I'm not saying it was good that they murdered Jews. No, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. That was really bad. A couple million? But see, since 1960s, we've killed way more than a couple million babies. And I know you probably are not one who did, although if you are, I love you and you're forgiven. That's not the point. The point is not you individually. The point is us as a people. And to sit and look back at history and say, oh, they were so bad. When we're far worse. We just can't ignore that. You know? So what was Herod? What was Pharaoh? Who are we? Who was Hitler? We are all pawns. Pawns in a game being played by a spiritual order that we cannot see or perceive. And we are either in subjection to one or another in this reality. And St. John in the book of Revelation, he, he pulls back the curtain. He reveals, or even you could say he epiphanies, how that war, that chess game, that war, is happening in heaven. Heaven being not far away, but the spiritual fourth dimension behind us and around us even now. And there's a lot there. We're not going to do the whole book of Revelation today. But in, in chapter 17, he gets, I think, the most honest intellectual and spiritual picture of the evil one. Now, there are other images, and we've talked about them already this year. The, the dragon is my favorite, really, because I like dragons. They're cool. And I love the image of an angel striking down a dragon. Like Michael does in Revelation. It's fantastic. Like in every sense of that word. And you have Lucifer in, in Revelation depicted also as a, a mighty star that falls out of the heavens and, and crashes into the abyss and brings bitterness with him. That's a fascinating picture, too. So there's more than one way to imagine this enemy of ours, and all of it really in Revelation is there to, to make us imagine it. I don't know why this one just, um, I think it's the most real and it's also the least allowed to be talked about. So John sees this, this woman on a scarlet beast. And the beast is full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. And you know, long story short, at least as much as I can make it here, seven in the book of Revelation always is about holiness when it's dealing with God. Ten always about, is about completion in general, completion. But in this case, this seven is not about holiness because this is a blasphemous seven. It's, it's like a blasphemous holiness. So it wants to be holy. It wants to look holy, but it's not. And then there's a real hat tip going on here. This doesn't hit us as Americans. We don't think this way about the ancient world. But anybody in the ancient world, if they thought of the, the city of Rome, 
they would have immediately thought of the city on seven hills. So the seven hills of Rome is a, is a, a definite image that is being pulled into this beast here. And we know this from other places in the book, that the beast is Rome. But the beast here isn't really the deal. The deal is the woman on the beast. It's not as though the beast has its own mind. The beast is being manipulated by its rider. And its rider, I mean, the first way she's described isn't bad at all. If you took it out of its context, it's quite a picture. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet. That's royalty image. That's not bad. That's not, oh, she's in blood. That's, she's a queen. She's a queen adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. It's all so beautiful, right? It's supposed to be. But then in the cup is abomination, impurity, and sexual immorality. That's what she drinks. She drinks and she gives to drink abomination, impurity, and Sexual immorality. Now, we need to touch on that one especially because it's very easy for the Sixth Commandment and the breaking of the Sixth Commandment to be the whipping boy by which we judge everybody else. They do bad things with sex, so they're bad, but I'm better. We like doing that. We're, we're good at doing that. It's a little harder to acknowledge where we all have our own infidelities, even when it comes to the Sixth Commandment and our relationships with husband and wife, intellectually, emotionally, all of that. But it's more than that, too. What you really need to see is that sexual immorality is wrong not because of itself, but because of what it means to those who commit it. It's not as though the human body cannot link up with another human body and make more babies somewhere else. Physically, it's obviously possible. It's that that linking is intended to be and go with a permanent commitment, emotionally, spiritually, verbally, in truth, the two become one, so that I am with, now i got to say it to her because she's right here, you, and you are with me, and we say this to each other and with no other. And so then when I am not, it's not just the physical act that's the problem, it is the betrayal of the commitment. It is the statement that the commitment is not real. That is the problem. And so sexual immorality in the prophets and in Revelation, before anything else, is a picture of the inability to speak truth. That you say yes, but you mean maybe. And that's what's in her cup. She drinks of the abomination of lies and infidelity and distrust. On her head is written a name. Babylon. And then here again, I, I don't know. You probably are tired of me complaining about translations, but we're so pious. That it, it, it's not like, you shouldn't be more pious than the Bible, right? Can we agree that like, like, if you're going to out-pious the Bible, you're doing it wrong? And that's what we're doing here. She's the mother of prostitutes. Sure, she is. But prostitute is a clean word for the thing. Really it is, because I can give you two more, and they go down as we go. So if I, if I say she's the mother of prostitutes, it's sort of like this clean, faraway thing. If I say she's the mother of harlots, hey, pastor, should you speak that kind of talk? And if I say she's the mother of whores, 
well, we're really not supposed to say that. But see, then we've, we've neutered the problem. <laughs> we've taken away the picture. She's not clean. She is dirty. And she's the mother of all of our filth. Babylon, mother of whores and of all the abominations of the earth. And she's drunk. Now, here's why she's here today. She's drunk on the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And John sees her and he can't even, he can't even imagine what on earth is going on. This woman, this queen, is drinking distrust and lies and laughing at the death of those who trust in Jesus. Who is Herod? Who is Pharaoh? Who is Hitler? Who are we? Who's behind us? This woman who was behind Rome. Rome isn't everything. Rome was one face of that beast. One face of united state-driven tyranny that seeks to worship itself and devour the faith and destroy it. And that hasn't gone away. That's always here. It just changes the face in some way. Now, at the risk of sounding esoteric, you know, if you say, at the risk of sounding esoteric, you already have, by the way. It's kind of funny. Um, German philosophers of history in the 1800s, they realized something very valuable about humanity. They realized that in every era, there is a, there's a thing or three that the people who live there, no matter how clever you are, you just can't see. And if you're like, come around 100 years later, you're like, how did they not see that? Well, I don't know. It's so obvious. Looking back, you can see it. But nobody can really see it. And this can take on different forms. It's not like a, a particular narrow idea. It's more like the movement or the direction of the entire civilization or culture. It's the assumptions. You've heard it kind of said this way. A fish never discovers water, right? Because they're just, it's just there. So what they started to call this thing that you just can't see, but it's always behind civilizations and usually is part of their downfall, they called it the zeitgeist. The spirit of the age is how that's often translated. I like to remember that the word geist is an English word and then is the same word, and then it also becomes the word ghost. So the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist, zeit is time. The time ghost. The spirit behind the ages again. And they, they acknowledged that this, this zeitgeist power behind civilizations was always sort of the, the blind spot for humanity and would lead to people doing things they otherwise might not do. And these are largely almost atheistic philosophers saying this, but they can see it there. And then they call it the time ghost. And I sit here and I go, well, look at this woman on this beast behind every era that ever was convincing us time and time again throughout history to kill our own children because it wasn't just Egypt and it wasn't just Rome and it wasn't just Judea. It's almost every civilization that has not been changed by Christianity or by monotheistic Abrahamic religion at least that has murdered its own children at some point. And behind it all is this drunken, raging woman with her infidelity cackling at the death of humanity. Now, what do you do with that? And John, jaw dropped. I marveled. That's what he did. What I want you to do with that is to know that, yes, he's here. Yes, the devil 
is behind this age too. And in all likelihood, wherever you think, and wherever I think I can pinpoint what he's really doing, I'm not that clever and neither are you. The zeitgeist blinds us. Think of the hymn that Luther wrote. How's it go? Oh, I'm not going to get this started. It's verse 2. How's it start? Ah. A mighty fortress is our God. i got to start from the start. A mighty fortress is our God, a strengthy shield and weapon. He holds the mm, something every need. Now I'm really failing you. Second verse. It's about the devil. Oh, I want the words. I'm going to look it up. Why not? You can't go anywhere. <laughs> ah, here it is. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. The old evil foe now means us deadly woe. Deep guile and great might are hid dread, his dread arms in fight. On earth is not his equal. With might of ours cannot be done. Soon were our loss effected. Soon were our loss effected. If you think you're going to outsmart the zeitgeist, you're going to lose. But for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. So here's Jesus, born. And interesting, God intercedes via that angel and Joseph to send him down to Egypt of all places that he might live and not die so that he might die that you might live. And then Matthew picks up on this as a fulfillment of prophecy. Right? So you have in verse 15 that all of that goes on. The zeitgeist of Herod doing what evil always does in its hatred of humanity is so that it may be fulfilled what the Lord spoke by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. And that seems really cool in a sense. We read through it in Matthew. Oh look, there was a prophecy that the Christ would come out of Egypt. That's pretty spiffy. And it came to pass. Maybe you've seen these online, maybe not, where you'll have, usually from evangelicals, they'll say there are 623 direct prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament of who the Christ would be. And they all came true like this. Here's your list. Isn't it amazing? And how can you not believe it? Now, I think it's cool, but I think it's not cool because there's more than however many they counted. And they're generally counting wrong. But that's a different topic. I, I want to I just give you this one here. Because if you go and you look up all of these even direct prophecies like this one, out of Egypt I called my son, there's a problem. Or, or there is, if you're, if you're thinking about it the way it's being pitched, there's a problem. Because the text in the Old Testament is not about Jesus. Or about the Christ. Or about the King. Or about the Son of David. It's about Israel coming out of Egypt under Moses. It's about the past, not the future. And Matthew comes and says, oh, no, no, it's about the future, too. Well, how can you do that, Matthew? Well, I'm an apostle, so he has, he has one on us there. But is it just once? Is it just one verse that works that way, or is it all of them? It's all of them. That the whole Old Testament story is a type, a shadow, an echo ahead of time of what Jesus is, will be, and everlastingly remains. So that when Moses, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and into the Promised Land. It's not just them. 
It's Jesus leading us out of death through the water that comes from him and hits you into the resurrection that will be yours when he comes again. In order that all of that might be true, that out of Egypt, meaning sin, death, the power of the devil, I called humanity in my one son, Jesus. In order that that might be seen clearly to be a fulfillment and the real deal, all of those martyrs died. And this is important, too. We, we pray in our prayers so regularly for the healing of those we love. And yet, how often do we pray that, that we would die in the faith? That when we do face the day we cannot heal, it will be with the good confession on our lips. Isn't that more valuable than such things? Matthew also quotes Jeremiah. He says, uh-oh, we might have to, it might stop because of the battery. Oh, well. He quotes Jeremiah talking about Rachel. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, second wife, by whom Joseph and Benjamin are born. His favorite dies in youth, was barren for many years, leads to all the nanny with the extra women and the multiple sons and all that. Rachel, he says, Jeremiah, many years later, at the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the kingdom, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted. So again, you have the Old Testament talking about when Babylon comes and crushes Jerusalem and how terrible it was for the past. And yet he says, now look, here it is fulfilled in these, these infant Christians confessing the faith, if only by dying as someone tries to kill Jesus. In that then, again, as we try to work our way through the Old Testament this year, the, the point of this all is not just that you would know the history. Oh, it's that too. But it's also that you would, you would hear this echo that never goes away, the story that never changes. It's always the same. It is always the reality of Adam's subjection to the harlot that he bent the knee, and in so bending the knee, brought all of us under that cup of tyranny and hate and distrust. But the harlot is undone by this one seed born of woman, this one man who is greater than us all, who then Moses amazingly represents in his own way, in his story that we heard, that while death is all around him and no one escapes his generation, just as no human being doesn't die, into the midst comes one who cannot die, or at least escapes death through water again. And the bit about, I mean, can you imagine being the woman, giving birth to a baby in secret? A terrifying thought, really. And then having to hide that baby as long as you can, but knowing it can't be done anymore. And what do you do? And she puts him in this basket. We translate it basket. The word's used twice in the entire Bible in Hebrew. Here, and to describe the boat Noah got on. In both cases, it's best translated as ark, which means floating box. He gets put in the ark and put in the water, just like it already happened. 
As death is raining down all around over Noah and his people in the world, so also here over Moses. And Moses is given over to God's charity. And what does God do with him in the river of death? But he takes him to the right hand of the king. He goes into the water, the son of a slave. He comes out of the water, the son of a king. And how is that also not the echo? The echo of you who enter the water, the son of a slave, Adam, and are born again, the son of a king, Jesus. And Jesus, who takes your slavery on himself and enters the grave with all that that really means, and then comes out again and ascends to the right hand of God, never to die again. We're not done with Moses. We'll get more of him next week. But this, this bit about death being what's here still and the spirit of the age being behind it all, this, this whore and prostitute who's still moving everything. Don't miss that in Revelation, she is shown to be given a mortal wound. Her head has been crushed. It's like you got one eye kind of half there and is bleeding everywhere, but she's not dead yet. She's dying, but she's not dead yet. And she's raging around trying to destroy stuff as she goes. That is the result of this moment when the nail that went through his heel and his hands and the spear in his side crushed the serpent's head. But the serpent's still here. Mortally wounded, not really in power, but here. And he knows his time is short. And his only joy is the loss of your faith. It's his only joy. Soon were our loss affected, but. Soon were our loss affected, but. For us fights the valiant one. I don't want you to walk out of here afraid today. I don't want you to walk out of here sad today. I want you to walk out of here firm today. Firm in knowing who the enemy is. And firm knowing that Christmas means the enemy's done. Even though the enemy's still here. Hmm. Told you it's a dark, it's a dark Sunday. Yeah. It's it's like unto, well, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. It's comforting, isn't it? In the name of Jesus, amen.